So startups that uh, like try and do something with a big company for months and months and months, sorry, you're most likely wasting your time. And it sucks because you need the money and the time. So you need a plan B. You cannot, it's very rare that this actually works. And then it's like six months in an executive says, you know, we're not going to do this after all. And then it's all lost. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So on today's episode, I interviewed serial entrepreneur, Haney Zaccaroni. Haney more recently was the founder and CEO of Avena, the world's largest wine marketplace with over 36 million users and 20,000 new users per day. Boasting a very impressive database of over 10 million wines from over 200,000 producers around the world. Allows users to scan wine lists or bottles of wine and crowdsource reviews on all wines on the app. Everything you need to know about the different wines without having to go through multiple sources to find out the information. Henny has raised over $57 million and the app has truly revolutionized the way people purchase wine. On this episode, we talk about how to start a successful app, the failures along the way, and how to manage expectations. With that said, before we get into the episode, I want to give a massive shout out to one of our sponsors, Blinkist. So I don't know about you guys, but I find it super hard to just disconnect and learn something new. It's not easy when everyone and everything is competing for my time and my attention, whether that be work or startups or a side hustle. You just don't have enough time to read a book and develop yourself. If that sounds familiar to you, there's an app I can highly recommend that you check out. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that condenses the best-selling non-fiction books down to their key takeaways for you to read or listen to in just 15 minutes. If you listen to some of the earlier episodes of Startup Hand-Me-Downs, I used to end each show with three main points just so it could really hit home. That's exactly what Blinkist does, but instead it condenses books into 15 minutes, which is awesome. I recently just listened to How Not To Worry by Paul McGee, and instead of reading the 250 pages that the book is, I got everything I needed to know about worrying in just 15 minutes. The main points, the facts, is perfect actually. On my way home, I actually listened to The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now, I've been meaning to read this book for at least 10 years now. And I finally got to listen to everything I needed to know about The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Great book, world-renowned book, everybody knows it. And I finally got to listen to it in less than 15 minutes on my way home. That's two books in one day, which is insane. So guys, right now, Blinkers has a special offer just for the Startup Hand-Me-Downs audience. Go to Blinkers.com slash hand-me-downs to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off of a Blinkers premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist.com slash hand-me-downs. All right, let's get into the episode. So, Heine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. So, Heine, when you are, I guess, out at a WeWork event, how do you introduce yourself to people? It depends on how, what kind of and how long an introduction you want. But usually I say, hey, this is, my name is Heine Sakharais, and I'm the founder of Vivino, the world's largest wine app and community. So that's a good intro. Strong. It- it's pretty solid. You know, I have a theory about intros. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, go for it. Um, the, the people that have done a lot in their life, uh, the more success they've had, um, the the shorter the intro, right? If you have to talk for ten minutes, it's not great. Yeah. So, um, so um, if you're if you're uh, Bill Clinton, maybe just say, "Hi, I'm Bill." <laughs> yeah, that, that I'm sure that works. That that would yeah. work. You know, my intros quite short too no it's actually pretty long to be fair so that shows where i'm at in life <laughs> uh, okay cool so 
um, before we get into Vivino and you know the incredible success of the app, I want to kind of start from the beginning because it's always it's always good to kind of paint a picture of in terms of what got you to that point. So obviously now you live in San Francisco, but you hadn't always lived in San Francisco. You actually grew up in Europe. So you grew yes. up in a little island in between Iceland and Norway. That is correct. A few islands in the middle of nowhere called the Faroe Islands. Uh, definitely the most beautiful place uh, you'll ever get to or never go to, but hopefully you'll get there one day. Yeah, I mean, and so what was life like growing up and how long were you there for before moving into Denmark, I believe? Yeah, so I, I was born in the Faroe Islands in uh, 1972 and I moved out of there in 1994. So I did live my first 22 years in the Faroe Islands. Um, it's really, uh, uh, really a wonderful place to grow up, uh, very safe, uh, very actually very equal um, I, I think it's an amazing place uh, to grow up uh, it was for me at least uh, obviously if you you know uh, want to do really big things you might not want to go out in the world and a lot of people do that also for education but people really do come back because it's uh, it's really uh, an amazing place to live if you can handle the weather yeah it's quite cold it actually it's it's not that cold um, so you have the Gulf Stream coming up which sort of warms it up uh, but it is windy and rainy and aggressive. Um, but it's it's not freezing. Okay, not freezing. And so, no. I guess growing up, were your parents entrepreneurs or into technology? Um, how did the passion for technology, where did that come from? Yeah, it's quite interesting because my, my parents were not uh, sort of traditional entrepreneurs. My father was, uh, uh, my, my mom was a lab technician, uh, but my father was a professor at the university. Uh, but my, I think my definition of a, um, of an entrepreneur is, is pretty wide, meaning that I think they can, you can be an entrepreneur in a big company, in the public sector, anywhere. It's about, you know, building stuff, changing stuff, creating things. And, and my father was definitely that. There was always a project uh, going on. So he was a different kind of entrepreneur uh, than, than what we know of today. Uh, from the tech side, there was no doubt that we were um, we were fed with tech from day one, and like I got acquainted to uh, computers from a very, very young age, where there were very, very few computers uh, on the islands. Uh, but my father was at the university, so when the weekend came, sometimes he would drag these massive computers home to us. So we we had two days to play around with these computers uh, that really nobody else had access to. Ah, nice, interesting. I knew it, something must have triggered that. <laughs> um, and so. Eventually, you moved to Denmark, and what did you do in Denmark? I guess you moved when you were around in your 20s, early 20s. Exactly. Yeah, I went to college there, uh, did a bachelor in business administration, and pretty quickly, when I was done with that, said, okay, I want to I wanna do something. I uh, did a few years with a sort of agency-type thing, uh, but then came into uh, starting another company. I, I wasn't there from day one. Uh, it was called Bullguard, which was security. Uh, and we built that uh, to a pretty decent company, actually with my co-founder Vivino too. Uh, company still around, and um, we're like you know a good success, um, but not like an explosive. But for me, as a learning thing, you know, amazing. Yeah, no, I was I was actually gonna jump into that. Um, so you mentioned that you did some. So after university, you kind of didn't take a traditional job. I guess you kind of joined something. Was that the virus? Yeah, exactly. So it was it was like yeah, it was like an agency first, and then we turned into to this early warning system. Uh, virus is very hot back then. We did this early warning system to let people know if if a virus was spreading somewhere in the world, and and sold that as a service. And then I joined uh, joined Bulgard a few years later, as I was a little bit I was a little bit excited about the security. Yeah, I guess uh, your time at Virus were you just as you said it was an agency. So were you just kind of like still quite junior in technical space? Because I know you were CTO there, but was it a product or it was more of a service, I guess? Yeah, it was like a service. It was more a service, yeah. Uh, it was an alert system where we sent text messages, emails, and, and even called people if something was, uh, something was happening out in the world. Back then, we had these viruses that like, moved relatively fast, but if you could get like a few hours warning uh, when I knew you remember the I love you virus and those guys uh, came along, there was a chance to say, okay, you know, um, be careful, there's something out there now. Right. And so that was when you kind of like wet your appetite for, uh, I guess, security systems and then you went to Borgard. Um, exactly. So how did, what, what was the stage of Borgard when you joined? Because I know you kind of done a multitude of roles there from COO yeah, to yeah. CEO. 
Exactly. So, so Bulgard wasn't really much when I joined. Like, uh, even though I, I wasn't sort of credit as a, as a co-founder, I always saw myself as a, like a semi-founder. Uh, like employee number one by, kind of thing. <laughs> yes. So Morten Lund is a, a legendary Danish entrepreneur, uh, a good friend. And the other was Thijs, who is my co-founder on Vivino. And what happened really was that Morten had done this deal with a company that you have heard about, Kazaa, back then about um, having distribution through Kazaa. And then Thais had helped build a product that was this security product that both integrated with, integrated with Kazaa, but also a separate security product for um, mostly for consumers, so not a business-to-business -business thing. And then I came in, in in sort of building the business and figuring out how to run the business. So that's basically what I did, sort of build the business. It was just the two of them uh, when I joined. All right. So, yeah, you were super, super early. So then, yeah. like, what you, you joined, and I guess, what did you do first? What was the first thing that you done? I actually, I took over running the business right away. So, so whereas Thais was very focused on the product, um, Morton is a fantastic uh, visionary entrepreneur, but he's not uh, necessarily the best at running a business so day one I took over anything related to the business from like figuring out how we would make money and uh, and figuring out how to run the business and hire people and so on so yeah I always find that COOs my how I take the whole COO CEO relationship is that CEOs kind of work on the business and COOs work in the business like that's yeah, always been my way of understanding it yeah, I think, and, and sometimes it's also, you know, it's early stage, it's a little bit, it, it, it is, I think it varies a lot. I think with us, I was pretty much CEO from the day I came in the business, um, because Morton, you know, just wasn't a big operator. Um, so, um, so I, I, you know, make that, make sure that ran uh, from day one almost, but uh, we needed him on board and, and so on. So that's how we, how we did it. Yeah, I mean, like Bull, like you said, Bulldog, Bullguard, rather, is, is still around today. Uh, you know, yep. you guys, are, they're still selling software. It's been around for over, I don't know, 10, 20 years. I guess you've done something right in the beginning. What can you talk about during your time at Bullguard um, that was kind of like challenging? Or like, how did you guys grow from, I guess, like to your first million dollars to however many million dollars? Like, how big did it get? And, and kind of what were the things that you did in the early days? Yeah, it was really, really quite interesting because we had this rocket of distribution. So, so we were on top of Casa, which was extremely popular back then, and we got like a trial uh, from that, and and so people installed the trial, and then we convert some of those. So it was a conversion game. One of the things that that really can be a challenge in those kinds of businesses. Okay, if, if this is your driver of the business right now, and maybe you convert some of them but not enough, what if you want to do something else? Maybe there's another way to make money. But since this like fire hose is so big, it's really hard to give attention to anything else. So it's hard to grow other distribution channels. I think that was a real challenge for us. Uh, for instance, we found out back then that uh, what, what is what we know as pre-installs was really big back then. There were, there were a lot more... Um, PC manufacturers back then, so we would go to them and say, "Hey, you need to have a pre-install of uh, of Bullguard. Give them a 60-day trial, and then some of them will convert." Mm. That was a really, really good business for us. But building that business next to Casa, which was this fire hose of of uh, distribution, but didn't convert really well, was tricky. It was tricky to balance that. And I think that's typical. If you have something that works really well, uh, then it's hard to build others because everything else looks so small. Yeah. So you guys just focus on that kind of strategic partnership and, and try to optimize that to the best of your ability. Exactly. Yeah, we got some really good partners, uh, best known. Uh, you remember Aldi had a brand called Median or they, uh, Medi Median or Median, I can't remember. But they sold these PCs also in the UK, extremely uh, good value. Uh, and we got like a global deal with them on distribution and so on. So that was pretty cool and we got really good distribution. And how were you guys funding the business? Was it self-sufficient? Did you guys do like a, I guess back then were VCs in, in Denmark at the time? Yeah, actually we got some European VCs on board pretty early. Uh, so Morton had made a little bit of money, so he funded it in the early days. Uh, and, and honestly, uh, the VC community in the Nordics was really weak. Um, and that's why I'm just so happy looking at it now that it's so strong. It's uh, everything has changed in the in the VC community in the Nordics. Like um, many many opportunities to to get funding at, at almost all stages in in Denmark and in Sweden and so on. Um, back then there really wasn't much. So we actually went to London and we got um, 
DFJ uh, on board, and they invested pretty early. And so how big did it get? I mean, initially it started off with U3. When you subsequently left, how big was it at the time? Yeah, we did around $20 million in revenue when, when I left. So, you know, that's a really, really good success. I think we, you know, um, we did good, I think. And for me, again, the learning experience was amazing. Like, really, uh, I, I think, you know, I don't think Vivina would have been what it is now without Bulgard. Uh, and that goes both for Thais and for me. Wow. And so did Bulgard, did you guys eventually sell it? Or, like, what was the deal when you left? Yeah, so we, we ended up selling it to some... Uh, uh, some investors of some kind and and they sort of they they just sort of took the profit off it I, I don't think they ever sold it again I think that some of them still own it so uh, so they just run it as, as a profitable business not necessarily a growth thing but but like a, a, a nice business just like a nice cash cow it's like running over there yeah exactly bringing in money exactly. so I guess that so how old were you when you when you sold the company oh my god yeah I must have been late uh, 30s uh, I think we did that in 10 I think I sold nine or ten. I sold my my shares. So, like uh, mid to late thirties, like thirty-seven, thirty-eight, or something. Okay, so you're kind of like set now financially, kind of. Yeah, kind of. It wasn't really a strong exit, to be honest with you. We made a little bit of money, uh, so. Uh, but like, you weren't worried about money for a few years, not, at least. Not tomorrow, no. Yeah, exactly. I guess after that. What did you do next? What did you decide to do after that? It's like, okay, we had like this moderate success with Bulgard. You know, I enjoy running companies. I enjoy tech. I'm going to be to San Francisco. Like, how did it go? Yeah, I was definitely fumbling a little bit what I wanted to do. Um, I had a few really like interesting board seats and stuff. And it's like, is this it? Do I want to do this? Do I want to? And, and I was looking for a really good, something that I would find really interesting. I... I, like security was fascinating as a business, but other than that, like pretty boring. Like it's the business side of it is interesting because people pay for it and uh, it's it's a good, you know, you know it's a good it's a good product and and can be commercially very very good, but it's not interesting. And I was really looking for something uh, that I would be more passionate about. And uh, and wine was something I actually looked a little bit at at. Uh, at what I call here soccer, football, see if there was some kind of online thing we could do there. Uh, but it ended up with wine because I think there was a really big problem there. I think I, as a novice wine drinker, just couldn't figure out what was good, what was bad. I was buying wine based on price and the look of the label and just just isn't rational. <laughs> yeah, basically the way everybody does it. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, this, this looks good. Uh, what are yeah. you basing that on? Uh, I don't know, the bottle looks nice. Um, yes. So, so that was, was <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, it's a cork. It's not a screw. It must be good. Okay, so you sell the company. You're like fumbling around for two years. In that two years, is that when you decided to move to the states as well? No, that was later. So, uh, so we started the company uh, in ten or so. Um, I had fumbled with it a little bit before, um, but it was not till we really raised a round funding in 2013 that we decided, okay. This has really big potential. Um, we think this can go very, very far. And there is still quite a bit of competition. And the theory always was, okay, if you win the US market, there's a really good chance you win the world. And if you're going to even further down, if you win Silicon Valley, you can win the US. And if you win the US, you win the world. Uh, so that was really the philosophy behind that. Okay, so you've decided that you're going to run with this idea. How did you guys start? So I know you're your previous partner from Bulgard. Um, Tice. Tice. Yeah. So you and Tice are like, look, we're wine novices. None of us know anything about wine. Let's start this wine app. Talk me through. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good what idea. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. talk me through the first stage. Like what did you guys do first when you realized, okay, sure. we're going to do this? Yeah, so I started a little bit before uh, and had Tice join me. Uh, so I started actually, uh, my initial thought was like, okay, why don't we build a website where you can search for these wines and have all this data? Um, because that was like, the first thing here is like, is this problem big enough? And is it big enough for enough people? And I knew the problem was big enough for me. And I had a pretty good idea that this problem was big enough for enough people. 
And then we just started building and, and meaning you know, adding data to this database, hired a team in India to actually fill it up. Uh, but the real breakthrough was, was when we realized that, you know what, this obviously should be on a phone. Uh, and sometimes we forget how big that shift was, but, but in 2010, we actually walked into a supermarket with a computer, a camera, everything was online. And five years earlier, you try and do that, you be have a, like a big backpack on or something, right? So there was a really big shift there that you brought your computer with you into the supermarket. And that was a, uh, uh, we saw as a big opportunity. And so, yeah, I wanted to touch on that point that you mentioned about the team in India. Um, so I read somewhere that you, you guys in the early days were kind of like the poster children for Elance. Yeah. Um, so you kind of built the product in the early days with freelancers using Elance. And I wanted to understand what the rationale was behind that, because I know you're quite technical and your, your co-founder is quite technical as well, I believe. What was the rationale yeah. behind building, using a team as opposed to building in-house and just like bringing more of your friends, I guess, on board? I So a few things. First of all, we're, we're pretty technical without being like programmers. So we understood tech pretty well, which meant that we could actually manage these people really well. So for us back then, it was a lot about cost. How do we get going quickly at a low cost? And uh, and I firmly believe in that. It's there is a quality aspect of it, and we definitely saw that too. That when you build quickly and remote, sometimes uh, the quality isn't always the best. Uh, but but you have to remember that the quality there can be a really really high cost at building really good quality. So we were fine with getting to a certain level because we were experimenting at the time. We didn't know what was right and wrong. Uh, so, uh, so at the time, building a little bit lower quality was fine. We got it at a good cost, and we could scale quickly. Like when you deal with these offsourcing uh, companies or find people on Upwork, like yeah, I can have four people tomorrow, uh, and that is hard to do in London. Yeah, it's hard to do anywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's hard to do anywhere. Like have scale quickly. Yeah, no. So. It, it, no, it's just super interesting and I guess quite refreshing to hear, you know, a successful entrepreneur in tech talk about the use of like freelancers because, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, especially when you're trying to raise venture capital, they want, you know, someone technical on the team, they want a, C they want a CTO, they want an engineer in-house and if you're freelancing or if you're outsourcing, you know, it kind of like sends warning signals to investors. Um, but this is kind of, I guess, a great case of leveraging, you know, freelancers to actually build to the next milestone ultimately. Yeah, yeah. So the other aspect of that, this now we're just talking developer, the other aspect of this which has, which has been crucial and still is crucial is that we ha always had a big outsourced uh, force of people working on our data. Uh, and that has been incredibly important. So when we started out, there was no database. So there was fragmented small pieces of data about wine, but nobody had built a global database. We've done that. We've spent 10 years on that. Most of the time, we've had 100 people working on it full time. So massive investment in this thing, which is sort of the key to where we are right now, that nobody else has a database like we do. And again, was that using, I guess, the likes of Upwork at this point? I mean, Elance is now Upwork. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it was those kinds of sites to, to, to find people. And then uh, at some point, they just became like people that work for us. So you have a team now. You're building a product. How was the initial launch? What happened? How did you get users? Talk me through kind of like day one sure, of sure. pushing the, the launch button. Yeah, definitely super boring uh, because because this big idea about a big launch uh, was really not the case for us. Um, we we really built as fast as we could, but we also released very early. So our, our philosophy has always been this minimum viable product philosophy. So get whatever you have, get it out there quickly, and just keep improving it. So give you an example of that, we, in the early days, it wasn't a native app, it was a hybrid, which means it's basically a frame, and then actually the rest was just HTML. You know, not the best way, but it means you can move really fast. So what we did back then is we rolled it out, and then we changed it rapidly. Like, every single week we did releases to find out what worked. Um, and it's really this philosophy that it's all about putting the product in front of people and then figuring out what's right or wrong. Um, and just assuming that you really, you don't know very much about what people want till you show it to them. Um, don't try and build this massive thing 
inside a closed room and then launch it, you're going to fail. So I really believe in these slow launches and really rapid iterations of the product. So where did you find, I guess, your first 100 product, like users, your first 100 users? Um, how did you kind of iterate in real time and then continue to grow? Yeah. So, so a couple of things there. Um, I, I had to just use whatever I had, which means... Um, which means using whatever social skills, social net, whatever, like on my Facebook, everybody just trying to tell people about this, any occasion I got. And then I tried to get a little bit of press attention on it, um, which was difficult, um, but we got a little bit lucky here and there. We, I really, actually, when it comes to getting attention at that very, very early stage, I believe in actually going for like the smaller blocks, instead of saying, I want to be on wire tomorrow, which is unlikely that's going to happen anyway. So if you go to these smaller guys, hey, we'll give them a little bit of attention. You won't get a big blast, but you get some blast. And in some cases, that actually can roll upwards. So so you, we get on a Android blog because we released like the first decent wine app on Android, and Lifehacker uh, just doesn't know about it, right? And boom, you get some traffic. So, so for me, it's all about getting the ball rolling. You know, if you get like 30, 50 users a day, then you can start building the product. Like, okay, we got these users. They will skip it if they don't like it. They will leave if they don't like it. And they'll give us feedback on what to build. So getting that ball rolling with using whatever tricks you have in the book, I think is, is incredibly important at the early stage. And I guess at what point did you decide um, that, look, I think we have something here. Like, when did you guys say, okay, this is a, like this is going to be a thing? Because I'm sure at yeah. the time you're like, okay, look, apps, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Let's build this wine app. I don't know anything about wine. You don't know anything about wine. Let's see how it goes. At one point, was it like, okay, wow, this is actually going to be a thing? I, I think we always believed in it. That's, I think, the thing about about, uh, about founders, entrepreneurs, is that we, we really believe in it and we keep going. Um, but the time that I saw, like, holy shit, there actually is something here was during 2012. Um, so in, in uh, like April 2012, we started, um, we, we released the first sort of real native version of the app, which means like just a better quality. Uh, we knew what features would work. Uh, so in April in 12, of 12, we, we, uh, we released that. And it was a little bit buggy in the beginning, but by June, July, we really started growing. Like things went really, really fast. So from April to um, to December, I think we grew like 20-fold or something. And by then, I saw like, holy crap, this is working. People want this stuff. Why? What do you think triggered that? How did? How were people hearing about you? Were people just referring you? Like, what was what was the trigger? So the growth for us has always been the same. It's word of mouth. So people drinking, people sitting together and enjoying wine. Um, so, so that's the core of our growth. It still is today. We get uh, 20,000 people installing Vivino every single day. And most of that is people uh, having fun and drinking wine together. So, so there, it's not like there was a tipping point. Uh, but our, our app, you know, the match rate, sort of how often do we recognize a wine, that improved like extremely slowly, right? Uh, but there is a tipping point, and we think, you know, when it's around 50%, when 50% when of time people say, hey, at least it works more than it doesn't, um, that sort of drove a bit of virality somehow. So, so there, there was a tipping point when it started going faster. And, you know, obviously, Vervino is, you know, I call it the Shazam for wine, right? <laughs> I'm sure you guys have yes, heard that already, the Shazam yes, for wine. Yes. It's a good way um, to uh, explain it quickly. Yeah, just like Shazam for wine. I've obviously used yes. it. I think it's incredible. How, like, you know, what do you think drove that community? Because it's a really strong community. And I think anything where it's like user-generated content, reviews, etc. you know, it's, a, it's you need like loyalists ultimately. Um, yeah, yeah. And how, were you guys like verifying the information? Like, can you walk me through kind of that whole process and like how technical that whole process was as well in terms of like uploading the wine and getting the data and making sure it matches? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think in the early, or in the early days it was pretty simple, right? Uh, you took a picture, we didn't know it. It would go into a interface that we built, it would be sent off to India and someone in India would look at it and say, this is this wine or we don't have it, let's add the wine. That's actually how it worked back then. Uh, quality of that was not always amazing, but it really felt like a magic moment. When it worked, it was kind of magic, right? Because it came up right. If it didn't work, and we said, hey, we don't know this one, but we'll check it out. 
like two hours later, we came back to them and said, hey, we've looked at this wine. We think it's this wine. And people said, oh, wow. So, so that feeling was really, really important uh, for us. Uh, the other factor that you mentioned sort of, of community and like we have, like you say, um, a really big base of hardcore fans and I really do appreciate them and, and they do an amazing job in building this data and community and so on. Uh, but the really big group of people are more casual users. And, um, I, and I'm a little bit of a cynic when it comes to why they use it. It's pretty simple. And they use it. They're willing to pick up their phone, use Vivino, because they get more of it, they get value out of it. Like, you need to build a product where people selfish, sort of selfishly could say, you know what, I do this because I get value out of it. Uh, that's the core of it. It's, it's a transaction that goes on. And they're willing to use it because they get something out of it. If you can't build a product like that, you know, you are in trouble. I guess as you guys are scaling and growing and you now figure out, okay, this is a sticky product and we kind of have a formula here. It sounds very linear, the story, but I'm sure it was not. <laughs> um, you know, can you talk to me about some of the challenges that you guys experienced during the kind of like the growth stage? Like, were there any was there, were there some, I guess, was there any contention around how we're going to monetize? Um, you know, having user-generated content and scanning is obviously kind of a tricky space because, you know, it, it's not a monet, there's not a clear monetization strategy back then, I guess. I mean, I know you guys have one now with the e-commerce play. What, what was some of the challenges that you guys experienced as you were growing? And like how, really? I know you guys eventually, yeah. I mean, in total raised, you know, just over $57 million, but like, was it kind of straightforward to raise money? Did VCs get it from the beginning? Like talk me through some of those challenges too. Sure. Yeah. I think that really the, the biggest challenge here was always building the data. Meaning, could we build it and how quickly could we build it? Like it, we spent uh, like two years just working before seeing any real growth. And at the time we're building data and, and. It was really, really tricky uh, because it's so massively big. Just to give you an idea now, we have 200,000 producers um, that have 10 million different wines. And we're just now in a few months, we're going to cross 1 billion pictures of wine labels. So just massive undertaking. And we didn't know, you know, when is this going to be good? When are we going to know enough wines? We, don't, we didn't know when it ended. And, and I, that was really difficult and really frustrating. And you really need a lot of stamina to sort of keep going at that and really having faith in that. So, so that, I think, was really, really uh, hard for us. When it comes to the, the investor side of it, I think the, um, um, you know, uh, I, I always say that, you know, uh, people say oh, it's so hard to raise money. Um, sure, it can be, like, challenging to raise money, but... Really, what's hard is to build a product that millions of people use every uh, use, right? That's the hard part. If you can do that, you'll get the money. So was it, I guess, in that sense, was it really straightforward raising money then? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought it was going to be like, yeah, we raised our round in like two weeks. No, no, no. It's always a pain in the ass. And, and because it's just complicated, right? There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of factors, a lot of people, a lot of egos and all kinds of stuff. Uh, so, no, it, it was... It was it was tricky, but um, but it's you know it, if you have the product, if if people see the growth and in a market that's big enough, you can definitely raise the money. And I and we've been privileged with with really good investors, but it's but it's always hard. It's, it's always difficult. And I, as a founder, probably always think that it's worth more than the investors do. So <laughs> of course, <laughs> um, I I know at one point you know when Vivino was you know really scaling millions of users, you done a partnership with Amazon. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Um, this is when they were yeah. releasing the, the Fire, I believe, the exactly. Fire phone. Yeah, yeah talk about that relationship. Yeah, so it, it, it's a proposition that we actually do with, with uh, quite a few companies now. Uh, but back then, uh, Amazon did not have a phone. And actually, I can tell you a story about it. I was at a, I was at a meeting up in, in Seattle and sitting down with these... Um, uh, these executives, they had a, they had like a, a, uh, an iPad kind of product. And uh, we started talking about this and they said, yeah, we'd love to, you know, build some, um, um, build something into this, uh, this uh, tablet where we could like scan a bottle and we'll get the information just like Vivino. We'd love to build that in as a, as a part of one of our products. And, and then I, I said, yeah, well, sure, we can, we can help you guys do that. We have the data, we have an API for it and so on. And then suddenly, and then I says, I'm like, that's, isn't it a kind of stupid, like, you walk around with a tablet and take these pictures, it was barely online? And I realized, 
like, holy shit, you guys are building a phone. And I just said it out loud. <laughs> and the room was just silent. <laughs> yeah. So, and obviously they were uh, working on a phone. They didn't tell me that at the time. And then they released the Amazon Fire phone. Uh, and, um, uh, and that obviously wasn't very successful. But, um, but it was cool to have a picture of uh, Jeff Bezos pitching Vivino. So that I can use at least. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's not a bad story. But I guess... Um, you know, I read somewhere that you guys initially did, you you invested a lot of money into that project and ultimately it, it failed. I guess when that happened, uh, what was the, the morale of the team at that yeah. time? And, and, and yourself, yeah, you think, know, I mean, like partnering with Amazon at that level where Jeff Bezos is involved is a big deal. I guess you thought this, yeah, could, exactly. this could be it. I think, um, um, yeah, I, so w this is something, really a story I tried to tell because it's important that you, you got to be careful by being flattered by these big companies. And, and we work with like all the big companies in the world now because they use our, our data and so on. So it's amazing. But um, these companies are big. They have unlimited resources to suck up your resources. So you really got to pick your battles when you, uh, when you do these partnerships. Don't, you know, you got to be impressed when Samsung calls you and says, hey, we'd like to do this with you guys. They're the biggest phone manufacturer in the world. Um, so, so that's impressive and you're flattered and your ego is boosted, but just be careful how many resources you put into that. And we've been through quite a few of these partnerships that haven't generated a lot. Uh, I can tell you now that uh, we're integrated with Samsung Bixby, which is their image recognition, and that's been very successful. A lot of people use it on their, on their Samsung. So um, just anyone at the early stage, we have so limited resources. Uh, just be careful how you use them. No, that, I think that's really good advice. And I think a lot of startups, you know, including myself, uh, you know, we were attracted to kind of that strategic partnership where we can leverage their audience of millions of potential users or whatever it may be. Um, but it's always, it never pans out as much as you would hope it would. No, no, no. And la let's be really honest. Like if in most cases, it just doesn't. So, so startups that uh, like try and do something with a big company for months and months and months, sorry, you're most likely wasting your time. And it sucks because you need the money and the time. So you need a plan B. You cannot, it's very rare that this actually works. And then it's like six months in, an executive says, you know, we're not going to do this after all. And then it's all lost. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Literally. So, okay. So obviously recently, I guess early last year, um, you decided to step down as CEO of Avino yep. um, and hand over the reins to the former CEO of StubHub, I believe. So, um, you know, what was the rationale behind behind that about, you know, leaving your baby? You know, it's been 10 years. You built this thing in Europe, moved over to the States, um, you know, grown it to, you know, 36 million users, I believe, 400,000 installs yeah. a month. Like this is a good app as far as apps go, considering most apps fail. Believe me, I know, um, <laughs> you know, like, did, did you just reach a point where you've burnt out or you don't think? You know, I know you still believe in Vivino, and I know there's a new kind of like strategy in place for like the e-commerce play. But what was the rationale behind, I guess, yeah. stepping down at this point? Oh, I've never believed more in Vivino than I do right now. I'm sitting in the big boardroom right now and doing this interview. So, I yeah, you're, you're still there. Yeah, I mean, you're still you're using yeah. your Vivino email. Yeah, <laughs> so. Exactly. So, uh, so, uh, <laughs> so I really have a lot of faith. I think so. Uh, one of the things that have you know has made me successful in my life, I think, is is finding people that are really good at what they do and better than I am at what they do. And at some point, this company was changing quite a lot from being a very product-centric company to being more of a marketplace, which required like really good operational um, competence and so on. And, and I started thinking, okay, what I like to do usually when I when I do some kind of projects, find somebody who's done something like this before and we can learn from that and figure it out. And started thinking, hey, isn't there someone out there that has done this before and can do it better than me? And, and that's when we started looking and, and, and came along uh, Chris and, and has worked really well. He's a, he's a hardcore operator uh, from StopHub where they, which is operationally super complex. It's very different to sell tickets than, than wine, but a lot of the complexities are the same. It's, there's, a, there's a funny thing there which I hadn't thought about is, uh, for instance, um, when it comes to wine and, and sometimes we ship it and maybe it's a day late or something goes wrong. Uh, but like with tickets, if it's one day late, it has zero value. <laughs> 
you can still drink the wine. You can't use the ticket. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And I know, Vivino, now you guys have a, is it a subscription play? So you can send wine now? Is that what you're doing? No, we're not doing that at this point. Uh, most of what we do is is a, a marketplace where you can buy wine through the app and we get a marketing fee on everything that's sold through the app. And, and we're seeing some really, really strong numbers and really, really good growth on that. Would you say this is kind of the first time or you're going in the right direction of Vivino properly monetizing? I honestly think so. We, we started aggressively doing the marketplace in 2016, really putting research into it. And I think in 2018, I would say, okay, we now have some kind of product market fit. Now it's just about growing it from here. Uh, yes, I would say that now it's really coming together. Awesome. No, that makes sense. I want to I wanna switch gears now and, and just kind of like talk about entrepreneurship in a, in a general sense. Because um, obviously I know now you're, you've got, you know, your YouTube channel, Raw Startup. You've got some awesome videos on there. I've been checking them out. Thank you. Um, so why do you think most apps fail? I mean, at the time when you started Vivino, there were over 600 wine apps already on the App Store, right? Yeah. So how did you go from being 601 <laughs> to being number one? Yeah, so, so the, the answer to the question is really quite simple. It, it, they just don't create enough value. So, so uh, whatever you're doing for me doesn't create enough value for me, for me wanting to do it. That, that's the core of it. Uh, in some cases, they create enough value once, but I only want to use it again two years from now, right? So you need to create enough value and you need to have a use case where people keep using this product. I believe that's the core of it. Uh, so, so we think, you know, we, we do create enough value, obviously. And on top of that, people drink way too much wine, so they use it all the time. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a fair point. And so, you know, you guys grew predominantly through word of mouth, but I guess what do founders typically get wrong when they're starting an app? For the first time or the second time yeah I, I think I think uh, usually it is so so the core of this is a product market fit like is is your product you know ready for the market and it, does the market you know like this product and I think what founders get wrong and and that's uh, so that's the strength and the weakness of a founder is that you know we have faith we believe in this and uh, and it, it usually takes that to get anything off the ground you have to believe a little bit more than you should and sometimes you believe you have this product market fit which really isn't there it's your friends telling you that it's an amazing product uh, but it really isn't how should startups approach in that case their venture when they're starting you know I think you're fortunate enough to have had that kind of experience really early on with Bullguard and, and virus with the agency but for startup founders who don't necessarily come from your background um, and they might be working, you know, like a regular job, you know, what, what should they do in the beginning? How should they approach this? Obviously, I do talk quite a bit about all those things on the, on the channel too. So, so you definitely should check out Raw Startup on YouTube. Um, but, but there are definitely some philosophies that I really, really believe in. And, and uh, one of them is, we talked about earlier about this minimum viable product. Uh, it means when you launch a product, build the smallest possible thing. Don't build perfection. Don't try and build something that's amazing and then put it on the market. I'm sorry, if it's a new thing, you really don't know what you're building. So what you need to do is build the smallest possible thing and then improve on it. Uh, and, and, and these people that come in and say, oh I, oh, I love Apple, I want to build perfect products. But I'm sorry, you're not Apple. Like Apple can afford to do this. You can't. So, so you're going to have to live with the fact that your product's not going to be perfect when you release it. And, and someone said uh, at one point, you know, if, you, if you're not a little bit embarrassed by the first release of your product, you're releasing too late. Yeah, that was, that was Reid Hoffman, I think. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. But I guess there's a fine line between, you know, the MVP. Like, what I struggle with, and I guess other people, is I want to build the MVP, but how bad can I afford to realistically create the MVP to a point where someone doesn't understand the concept or it doesn't do exactly what I want it to do or it might be a good concept but it just looks horrible like how do you how do you like create enough space for that yeah it, it's it's definitely a judgment call uh, but but the one thing that people say is, yeah but but people are gonna 
uh, they're going to try it and never come back. Yeah, well, I don't care. It's 100 people. There's the next 100,000, whatever, right? You will learn from those 100 even if they don't come back. So, no, I feel, you know, pretty strongly about that, that you will lose some people and it's fine. That is the cost of learning. I don't really have a problem with it. But then it is a balance, like how bad can it be? But if you really dig into the word minimum viable product, so it is a minimum, but it's also viable. So, so there has to be something there uh, that makes it viable. And other than like team and tech and kind of like the basic things that you would expect um, a startup founder to kind of focus on, what would you say are the most valuable skills or the most valuable skill sets needed in order to kind of like start a, a good app? Is it product? Is it design? Like, what would, like, what would you put yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's so from, from that side, I think actually the knowing or understanding product is the most important thing. So what I mean by that is that, that you know, developers, you obviously need someone to code this thing, but figuring out what to code is really the hard part. Actually, you could get someone else to code it if they know what to code. So, so if I was going to do a first hire, that will be a product person, not a developer. So I think that's important to, to realize that it's not about coding, it's about understanding product. No, absolutely. No, it makes a ton of sense. And I guess, again, from like the entrepreneurship side of things, you know, certain founders tend to think that they need to start with a bunch of money and they need $100,000 to get the app off the ground. Like, <laughs> what, do <you> say, <laughs> what do you say to, the, to those people? Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's, it, it's, it's this illusion of that investors invest in ideas. Uh, and I'm sorry, if maybe if you're a four time, fourth time founder, they'll invest in your idea. Uh, but investors do not invest in ideas. Ideas don't have a lot of value. Execution and building stuff does. So, and, and don't go around with PowerPoints uh, with your idea and try and raise money to build a basic thing. You're gonna have to hustle your way to build something, whatever that is. And you can't go to an investor, hey, I'm just waiting for you to put some money and then I'll build it. That's not gonna work. I wanna work towards wrapping up now and I have a few kind of rapid fire questions that I would like to ask. Um, sure. So yeah, let's start. So what has or who has been your biggest inspiration? Oh yeah, um, it might actually be a Brit, it's, and it's not because you're in London, um, but, but uh, and this is really, yeah, I don't know if this is a little bit uh, weird, but like Richard Branson has uh, meant something for me uh, for like a, a, a weird kind of reason. I, I read his book when I was you know, pretty young when it came out. I think it, it was called Losing My Virginity, you could have. Oh, no, it was Screw It, Let's Do It, or Screw It, yeah, Just it Do It. Of, yeah, yeah, it could well be. Um, and for me, because I'm, you know, relatively smart, intelligent, and so on. I really always wanted to think about things and plan them and do the right things. And when I read that book, I sort of realized, holy shit, this Branson guy, you know, he's not that smart, honestly. Uh, but uh, no, of course he is, right? But, but he did some things like, oh, my God, that feels really stupid. But the key here is really doing it. And uh, hence the title, obviously. But, but like understanding that you can't plan for everything. Um, there's always gonna be a risk of this failing. You just gotta do it. I think that came out of that book really strongly. So I definitely, he's definitely been an inspiration for me. Uh, favorite podcast? Oh, favorite podcast. Wow, that is a good question. Am I allowed to open my podcast app at this point? You can, but that doesn't mean it's your favorite if you have to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> then it's kind of weak, right? But the thing is, it actually changes um, quite a bit. I'll tell you one that I've listened to recently. It's called Gangster Capitalism. Uh, so it's about uh, uh, capitalism gone rogue in some cases, and they have a really good coverage of the uh, college admission scandal, uh, which I think has been a little bit fascinating. Uh, so, so that's definitely one of them that's all the way up. Favorite book? Oh, I have uh, a lot of favorite books. Wow, what is it? I, actually, I should go back to the Richard Branson book there because that really made an impact on me. Uh, back then but I'll say also that I really enjoy some of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's books uh, one of them um, David and Goliath I really enjoyed uh, a lot uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do I think one of the strengths as a founder entrepreneur is that we have a lot of anxiety um, uh, we push hard and we're aggressive and uh, and we're extremely impatient sometimes I wish I had a little bit more patience and it could take a little bit more cool
That's good. That's, not, that's an honest answer. Um, <laughs> the advice you would give to your 21-year-old self. 21, where were you? Uh, Denmark or Iceland? Where were you? You're on your island. Yeah, yeah, fair eyes. Yeah, no. Yeah, I think, uh, I think back then uh, it would definitely be just do it. Uh, it. It really took me a while to figure out that that you need to learn to just do it and don't think uh, because when you're smart, you can always find a good reason not to do things uh, and you need to find a good reason to do things instead. What would you do if you had $100 in your favorite city? I would get the best meal I could in that city for $100. I'm just going to blow it all at once. That's good. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's the one thing that startups should ignore in the early days? Yeah. Um, I actually, yeah, this is a little bit nuanced, but, but I think you should ignore competition. Like when you start out, just do your thing. And then just don't look at the competition as much as you should. Uh, sorry, don't look at the competition as much as some people think you should. You, you just do your thing. You, you believe in this, go for it. And I guess what's the vision for the company? I mean, I know you're, you're on the board now um, and you're the chief evangelist. Um, so like what's the goal for you still of for yeah so so the the uh, the long-term vision here is like really first of all every time people buy a wine they should check Vivino first like Vivino is going to be the authority that helps you find your next wine and uh, so we want to be the authority on that and that we want people to buy their wine on Vivino too uh, so I'm not saying you should always buy your Vino, but every time you make a buying decision, you need to find out, is it good? Is it bad? What does it taste like? We need to be the authority on that. In some cases, they'll buy it from us too. Look, this was incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, if people want to find you and get in contact with you, where can they find you? So, uh, so I'm on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter um, uh, under my name, obviously. But also, your audience especially should uh, should check out Raw Startup on, on YouTube. Yes, Raw Startup, incredible videos, very informative, super useful. Um, I actually loved the uh, your 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 top six tips, and then uh, you know leave, I didn't leave a comment for <laughs> for what my tips were, but. No, I thought your, your top six tips were, were, were great. Awesome. All right, this is so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Just want to say another huge thank you to Heine for coming on the show and dropping all that knowledge. As he said, he's no longer the CEO of Vivino, but he is dropping a lot of great content on YouTube. So make sure you go and check that out. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Podcasting app. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.